no matter what, our organization and our administrators and our board always backed up on doing what was right for the patient, get the care that they need, make the patient feel comfortable, and let's not make our vulnerable populations come into the clinic and expose them potentially to COVID and it not being a good outcome for them. We always put the patient first. And I think that's what's really made our community and our hospital really strong in focusing on providing the best quality care. Welcome to This Is Rural Health, a podcast from the California State Rural Health Association. The CSRHA is focused on ensuring that the needs and voices of rural Californians are expressed and heard, and is continually working toward improving the quality and length of life of rural Californians. This podcast, like the CSRHA, brings together leaders in rural healthcare with policy advisors, community leaders, and other forward thinkers to gain a better understanding of what is happening across today's rural health ecosystem. Each week, you'll hear the unique perspectives of industry and community leaders and how they're finding innovative solutions to the challenges of a rapidly changing and increasingly complex healthcare industry. Now it's my turn to introduce Jeff Dunbar. Jeff serves as the treasurer for the CSRHA and he's been a board member for a number of years. Jeff is the CEO of Offsite Care, which is a multi-specialty telemedicine company. Jeff has spent his entire professional career in the healthcare field, starting off with a local HMO, Health Plan of the Redwoods. He's since held positions in sales, marketing, HR, recruiting, and operations. Jeff pretty much knows it all uh, in Fortune 500 companies. Jeff has been with Offsite Care since 2007 and has been running the organization since 2010. So Jeff, without further ado, I will hand it over to you to introduce today's panel and our panelists. Thanks for that introduction, Scott. I appreciate it. So I have the pleasure of introducing and moderating the panel today. And I'll give you a little um, brief introduction of each of the panelists. Uh, first, we have John Helvey, uh, CIO for Orchard Hospital. Uh, John has been in the healthcare industry for 24 years. He currently provides executive oversight to Orchard Hospital's IT systems, including radiology, laboratory, and employee safety uh, departments, as well as others. Uh, next, we have uh, Rocio Camacho. Rocio has served the rural health community for several years as a clinical operations manager at Ridgecrest Regional Hospital. She currently manages rural health clinics serving California's East Kern County. Uh, next, we have uh, Dr. Jeff Egler. Uh, Dr. Egler is board-certified family medicine and medical director at the Inspire Health Center at the Adventist Health Corporate Campus. His goal is to clearly identify the values and health priorities of his patients, as well as their underlying challenges. Uh, next on the panel is Joel Gray. Joel currently serves as executive director for Anthem Blue Cross's California Medicaid Health Plan, which serves um, over 1.2 million members across 29 urban and rural counties. Joel has uh, two decades of diverse industry experience across commercial, Medicare, and Medicaid markets. Welcome, Joel. And uh, the fifth member of the panel is Libby Segarra. Libby Segarra is a healthcare management consultant at Blue Path Health. She has a deep experience in healthcare and technology program management, facilitation, business development, and communications. Welcome everybody and uh, thank you so much for joining us. So we'll start off with kind of a heavy question here and we'll start with, with you, John. 
a, a number of gaps remain in ensuring access to telemedicine, telehealth, virtual care, whatever you might call it, especially in rural communities. What are some of the opportunities and barriers or challenges for telemedicine your organization is experiencing during COVID-19? And what do you think that might look like in the future? Well, can you hear me? We can hear you fine, thanks. Okay. Uh, obviously, uh, video was working uh, prior to our conference starting, um, and now it's not working, which is typical in some of the challenges that we have in telemedicine. Um, sometimes technology um, jumps in the way and um, prevents you from actually seeing the patient or Connecting with the patient, um, some of the technology is not as seamless as it needs to be. Um, some of our um, some technologies um, and people's skills in technology um, are not there, and we find that with the younger uh, group that it's, they're much more technology savvy. They can um, get in uh, with our el more elderly population. It's much more of a challenge. We are finding that uh, people are engaging in healthcare with their relatives a lot more than normal uh, with telemedicine, uh, which is a good thing. I mean, people are learning and growing. And um, I think that given our current situation uh, with this pandemic and COVID-19, I think telemedicine is critical. Um, I've been very supportive of telemedicine all my career. Um, all the way back to UCI and, and behavioral health, uh, some resources of providers that you need to have access to aren't necessarily within your location, within your region, or difficult to find in um, when you have transitions. So um, I think this pandemic has really presented an opportunity for us in the rural and the FQHA, FQHC settings to really um, embrace technology and open it up for reimbursement and provide an opportunity for those that are at risk uh, to stay safe and yet get the healthcare that they need. Thank you. Libby, um, how about you? What, what are your clients seeing as uh, challenges and opportunities uh, given COVID and, and what that might look like going forward. Thanks, Jeff. I'd, I'd like to piggyback on what John just said. I, I, I want to mention, I work with FQs and public hospitals across the state. Uh, Blue Path Health also supports the California Tele Telehealth Policy Coalition and um, a group that we call the eConsult Workgroup. So some of the examples I'll talk about today will be asynchronous or eConsult examples. And, and also, of course, we'd love to touch on live video and, and phone. Um, John mentioned something I think so important is how FQHCs have been impacted with the pandemic and um, the fact that all of a sudden, if uh, patients are not feeling safe to go to be seen face-to-face -face in a visit, I'm sure you've all seen that impact on your FQ volume, especially early on in the pandemic. I think that was a challenge. Of course, volume dropped and that means payments drop. But the opportunity that arose with that was that clinics turned on a dime and they went, you know what, we have the opportunity now to do phone visits. Let's figure out how to make this work. Um, providers who may have been resistant to telehealth before went, you know what, this is the only way we can keep our doors open is by doing this. Um, I think what was interesting is, uh, and this isn't an ageist comment, it just happened that uh, early on in telehealth, a lot of residents jumped on board and were eager to do it. 
a lot of veteran uh, specialists may not have been as interested in telehealth, but with this, it became once again a safety issue for doctors. Doctors realized, wow, I can do telehealth from home. I can, as uh, let's just say an elderly specialist, I can see my patients and keep myself safe while keeping them safe. So I think that safety aspect is so important, but then also touching on the fact that this is a way to keep the doors open in our FQs. Um, I think that, that an interesting barrier is that, uh, that in some of these rural settings you're so familiar with, we have families, we have staff who've also been hit by COVID. So one uh, public hospital with an FQ that I work with closely is having their staff um, deal with their own family, uh, their own family crises. So when you have staff that are being affected directly by COVID, that results in some ups and downs. Um, your ability to support health, telehealth can actually be challenging by your own staff's family impact. So I think that's been interesting to manage too. Um, but it's also, we've seen a lot of resilience and collaboration and people supporting each other through those changes. So it's been great to see, but it, it's also just nice to see these flexibilities that Scott mentioned. And we just hope that post-pandemic, these flexibilities stay in place to enable the telehealth that we're seeing. Ups we've seen an upswing in currently. Thank you, Libby, for those comments uh, from a breadth of uh, uh, customers. Uh, uh, Rocio, um, any, anything unique uh, in Ridgecrest or Kern County that you see? I think one of our biggest challenges was one, to get all the technology you need to make telemedicine visits happen. Um, obviously there was some grants available, but they are very competitive. And another thing that we probably didn't think about initially, but now we've gone ahead of it and have put it in place, was translation services during telemedicine. Um, we do have a Spanish speaking community or patients who speak other languages. And that was something we had to figure out quite quickly um, since COVID happened and progressed so quickly and every day there was a new piece of information to have to deal with and figure out what is the next step to make sure that we are still providing a high quality of care and make sure that the patient is getting their concerns addressed, but the provider is still understanding and there isn't a miscommunication or mistranslation in providing the service. So that is something that we did have to figure out and it was kind of a slow moving process because I mean, technology was in such a high demand because all healthcare organizations across the nation were trying to accomplish the same exact goal. But at the end, we did figure it out and we did implement it. And I think one of the biggest successes is to always have a super user in all of the technologies that are implemented in both on the provider side and the nursing support staff and administratively so that everyone is on the same page and everyone feels like they are providing the highest quality of care and the patient feels like they are getting taken care of and it's not like we just slapped it together and figured it out. It's like, no, we really did think it through and we will help you get through the process. So we did help the patients, you know, how do you have a Zoom appointment or how do you use this new system we're using, doxy.me? You know, we did help the patients and the nurse or the clinical staff did help the, um, the patient get set up the day before their appointment to make sure that there wasn't any hiccups, got them logged in before their appointment. You know, and those were things that we had to figure out on the spot just as the rest of us. Great. Thanks, Rocio. Joel, from a payer's perspective, um, what is it? What does it look like today? And what do you what do you see for tomorrow? Yeah, so from a payer perspective, thinking about all the counties we operate in and all the you know over a million lives that we serve, I think our challenges that we're seeing a lot is on the access side. 
the demand, as, as many have alluded already, the demand for telehealth um, has, you know, been an unprecedented explosion in utilization. In some ways, it's outstripped uh, available supply of providers that have stood up telehealth programs and have the technology in place, feel comfortable with it. Um, I'll especially call out, I think, on the specialty side. We've seen some challenges in, in making sure that there's sufficient access to, uh, to telehealth. Um, again, on a macro scale, on a local scale, maybe not, but on a macro scale, we are seeing some challenges there. We even have, you know, a lot of health plan payers have direct-to-consumer telehealth offerings. These are like your teledocs and Amwells and LHOs and all that type of things. Um, we're, you know, those were usually overflow things. They never had a lot of utilization. We've never wanted them to compete with, say, primary care delivery systems or local delivery systems, but you know, on a late night on a weekend, um, it could be an alternative to emergency. Again, we're seeing um, supply just being outstripped. That wait times for these were way higher than they ever were before. So I think we're really motivated. That's again, produces that opportunity to really make sure that we're supporting and doing everything we can to help um, our providers, especially our safety net systems and FQHCs and primary care delivery systems stand up telehealth programs and systems and technologies, which, you know, we have a lot of efforts underway with providing technology and funding and support. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I'd also say from a, a challenge side, it's on the regulatory side, you know, health plans are measured. A lot of us are familiar with HEDIS and quality, but we're also measured heavily on network standards, such as time and distance ratios and uh, ratio of specialists to mem uh, members or patients and same thing with PCPs. And there's like a whole slew of these measures. And as we start thinking about telehealth, there are some rules about how you get credit for being measured, but it's it's tricky and it's very difficult. So it's kind of a challenge for us to say, as we go into this new world of telehealth, uh, how do we get credit for those? And then on the opportunity side, I think I'll just, just end and say, we are looking at e-consults as potentially a big opportunity. I've uh, been a big fan of what they are and what they can bring to delivery systems, really strengthening primary care delivery systems, supporting a lot of the efforts for behavioral health integration and inside of the medical home. Um, Libby, you know, talks uh, a lot about that and, and represents a lot of our e-consult types initiatives. So really see that as an opportunity with telehealth is to say, look, if there, if there are not enough specialists, even from a telehealth perspective, can we start rolling out e-consults um, to help strengthen uh, an alternative pathway, I should say, to, to specialty care through the primary care provider? So we're, we're exploring a lot of things there as well. Thanks, Joel. Dr. Eckler, I don't know if you were here for the uh, original question, but I'll just uh, rephrase it here. We're just talking about opportunities and barriers for telemedicine your organization has seen you know, now with COVID-19 and, and what do you think uh, those might look like um, after this initial wave? Yeah, sorry about that. I had it, but that's one of the efficiencies of, uh, of telecommunications is that you can hop seamlessly from one meeting to another. Uh, what I see is some of the greatest opportunities. Somebody already mentioned it. Uh, you know, think about how this can change uh, really important things like our infectious disease control. But, you know, in, in this context, it makes no sense anymore for a sick person with an infectious disease to walk into a busy pediatrician's or a doctor's office, potentially infecting everyone there, including the providers who will then go on to even with something like the flu. So it helps us to rethink things that have just been sort of our standard of care. Uh, efficiency is is tremendous, uh, and not only from the provider side, 
But think about a, a simple example is if you, if you have the luxury of having 30 minutes with a patient, which most of us don't, right? Um, if you do, in my experience, by the time you go through the process of having a nurse or an MA room that person, it's, it, it, you're lucky if, you're, if you get 20 minutes, right? So now you can have those processes done outside of the typical window because you're not dealing with the normal space-time continuum. You know, you can have somebody that's greeting that patient in a virtual window before the doctor even comes in. So that's just a simple way of being able to see some of the efficiencies here. Um, barriers, the, the greatest barrier that I see, quite frankly, is we've thought quite a bit about, okay, how is this going to work for providers? Uh, are the providers going to take to it? How can we make it easier for the providers? And then you go to the visit and the patient's not on the other end because they're not able to, they haven't been oriented to the technology. They haven't got the same sort of instructions. And so this is super important for this to work. And I think it is super important that this does work. Uh, but we have to take the time. Maybe we need to make short videos on how to download the software and to prepare themselves, what they can expect from it. Maybe they need a very standardized, simple, but, but uh, straightforward instructions. We have to make sure that the experience from the uh, the consumer, I hate to use that word in this, in this context, but we have to make sure that it, it's a seamless experience for them as well. Great. Thank you. And so, uh, I'm going to come right back to you. Um, and, uh, this is in, uh, line with the theme of our conference here, but, uh, what's a story of resilience, uh, that has helped keep your staff agency, um, so forth, uh, that's inspired you. Coming back to me. Yeah, I, I think this is all a story of resilience, right? The fact that we have um, that we have all just sort of gone on. We we took whatever challenges were in front of us, and and we implemented these kind of solutions to get through. The fact that we're all still providing care and uh, have adapted so quickly, I think, is an incredible story of resilience. I'll tell you, in our organization at Adventist Health, we went from what was probably a five-year plan of increasing telehealth to a small percentage of our business to doing it almost 100% of our business in two weeks. That is incredible resilience. We, we took advantage of the opportunity to create a hospital at home program. Do you know how many points of friction uh, existed between doing that prior to COVID that were, we just had to rethink and we kind of eliminated all of the the non-real problems, the, the thing, the fears that we had. We just had to do something differently and we did it. And I think we've had some amazing results. Great. John, how about you? Any, any particular anecdotes or uh, overall uh, themes that uh, scream resiliency to you? I think that we just have to consistently adapt, improvise, and overcome. Uh, and at all levels, uh, whether it's the MA, whether it's the provider, whether it's the patient, um, the resiliency of, of receiving your care in a telehealth form, um, it takes engagement at all levels. And many times that engagement extends beyond, uh, beyond the patient um, and the support system around the patient to, to get their care. Um, and I, I, I agree with uh, Dr. Egler, keeping people out of public spaces with infectious diseases is critical. Um, I think one of the, the things that we have to try to be 
figure out and be more resilient with is the internet of things. We got to, we got to figure that out. We still have to, you know, take vitals and, and check on things that we don't necessarily have access to um, and have that level of integration. So uh, resiliency with adapting to the different technologies that we, get, we interface with, everybody wants a seamless technology that's all integrated and everything's flowing in and I've got access from a specialist perspective or a primary care perspective to all the information requires health information exchanges, requires internet of things, requires uh, the patient to be engaged, know how to use the tools that they have. There's a lot of education that has to go on, whether you're using an Android device or a PC uh, or a Mac or an iPhone. Um, Everybody has been patient, um, understanding the pandemic and supportive of the patient. And I think that uh, resiliency is the key word in this entire uh, pandemic um, situation. Thank you. Joel, how, how about from your perspective, um, any, any stories about resiliency you want to share with us? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a trend. I, I have to borrow from other folks here who have already spoken that, that the whole thing is about resiliency right now. Um, I think for me and, and a lot of people on my team, it's it's uh, really just pushing through a lot of challenges that the whole situation is presented where you're being told no a lot. Uh, there are a lot of like, we're trying to push the boundaries a lot right now. I mean, overnight, we were getting emergency declarations on how to reimburse different things. And some of it wasn't very clear. And, and you know, we have providers reaching out to you saying, will you reimburse this? Will you reimburse that? And, um, you know, some parts of the organization saying no, and then some saying yes, and ultimately just trying to do the right thing. And there's a lot of people on our side that really are trying to do the right thing. And and we push through a lot of that. Um, I think even specifically, uh, Rocio, like you, you mentioned something about language and interpretation services. And um, we got off the ground uh, this year in the middle of this pandemic, a big initiative to start providing um, iPads and rolling carts to a lot of our FQHCs across California, some of them probably even on this line right now. And um, it was a brand new thing for an organization like Anthem to say, hey, we're going to provide Anthem-owned assets that normally only go to employees, but we're going to configure them, we're going to take passwords off them, and we're going to put an interpretation service app on them, and we're also going to try to push down Doxy, uh, Zoom, Teams, all these different video conferencing apps and say, hey, FQHCs, if you're interested in getting these top-of-the-line iPad kiosks, we'll configure them for you, take away the IT administration for it. Um, get it working with an interpretation service. And then we'll also um, bake in a way that we can pay for interpretation services on demand through video or audio. And we'll pay directly as a health plan and integrate that with video conferencing apps so that people who can't come into the office anymore can benefit from interpretation through a telehealth visit all together. And honestly, you know, there was no's all around on that inside our organization. It, it violated every IT policy that we probably have in our company. Um, how to do the reimbursement didn't make sense from accounts payable. Uh, and I could go on and on. I mean, it was nose everywhere. And, and a lot of um, fantastic people in my organization just pushed through that and said, this is a fantastic thing to do. It's the right thing to do, especially during this pandemic. And we got through all of that to yes. And then here we are today. I think we've deployed hundreds of these things in the field. Uh, we've reimbursed around 50,000 minutes of interpretation in just a matter of six months. Uh, and we're seeing the lives that this is kind of impacting uh, on the front lines of our primary care systems. Thank you, Joel. Rocio, uh, anything in your local market that you think uh, is um, 
speaks to the resiliency of the, the patient base or the providers or the community. So Ridgecrest had a big earthquake in 2019, almost a little over a year ago. And I think that event really prepared our organization to adapt quickly to all the changes as you know, we had a big earthquake and then another one hit and they're like, well, nobody expected that one. We all thought the first one was the big one. And I think it created a sense of community in and outside of the organization where anyone who needed something, we all helped each other and we all pitched in at the beginning of this pandemic, people were making handmade masks, you know, and at the beginning, the CDC said, no, they're not accepted. And now they are accepted. And now we ask the community to really pitch in and help. But um, in addition to that, I think our CEO, James Uber, and our RHC clinic administrator, Michelle Wally, always did what was right for the patient, no matter what CMS was saying, because CMS took a while to really react and say, these are the guidelines for RHCs and FQHCs. It's like we were always excluded on doing telehealth. And then they're like, well, you can do it, but these are the guidelines. You can't use Zoom. You can't do this. And they're like, the next day is, yes, you can use all of those, you know. But no matter what, our organization and our administrators and our board always backed up on doing what was right for the patient, get the care that they need, make the patient feel comfortable, and let's not make our vulnerable populations come into the clinic and expose them potentially to COVID and it not being a good outcome for them. We always put the patient first. And I think that's what's really made our community and our hospital really strong in focusing on providing the best quality care. Great. I remember that earthquake. I was on actually on the phone with my grandmother when it was happening. Uh, she, li she lived in Ridgecrest. Uh, Libby, uh, you, you know, you see customers all throughout the state. Um, any stories of resiliency that uh, come to mind? Yeah, I was thinking about this last night. Um, it was, it's just interesting when you reach out and you have conversations with people who are in their homes, really struggling to figure out how to shift and get the care they need. And I work with a dementia care provider that has traditionally done home visits, gone into people's homes, uh, made sure that the uh, patients are safe, made sure that they have what they need in terms of getting the care they need in their home since dementia patients often cannot travel for care. So um, with typically uh, patients with Alzheimer's or dementia being elderly, those they, they obviously are not going in on site for care and shouldn't have people in their homes delivering the same sort of care they're used to. So <clears throat> what was so interesting to see how quickly those patients and their providers were able to shift to a a Zoom or a, a, a video setting, which you wouldn't expect, right? You, uh, you, we, we sort of, you know, poo-poo the fact that those who are elderly can connect and, and use technology the same way anyone else would. Uh, they quickly shifted and the, the dyads, the, the person who was helping the, the individual with dementia was able to quickly support their loved one, which would, you know, both of them are 80 years old. So you have two Medicare patients sitting in the home, connecting to an occupational therapist remotely. And we didn't think it was going to work. We thought, you know, that something's going to go wrong because, you know, there's, there are a lot of room for, there's a lot of room for error here. Uh, not only did those elderly patients and their loved ones jump on board, but they were so appreciative, not just of the fact that they could get occupational therapy remotely, which I, I should note, this is because of the flexibilities of reimbursement during the pandemic in Medicare, but also the fact that these people are not connecting with anyone. You know, they're in a rural setting. They're not traveling anywhere. They're not seeing people in their homes. The person who was the, the caregiver to the patient with dementia, when I spoke to her, she was just so appreciative to have a phone conversation. 
So the fact that she's having a caregiver connect with her via Zoom um, inspired her. She said, you know what? I, I know I get to talk to my occupational therapist and that's great, but I need to talk to others. I need to talk to others who are dealing with the same thing. So they started a peer group and all of these elderly patients or caregivers are jumping on a Zoom together. And they're talking about their experiences with dementia or caring for a person with dementia. And so although they probably would have never tried Zoom before, it necessitated that they use it. And then it became a communication and connection forum for them in their, in their home setting. So that was inspiring to me. We, we can do it. Wonderful story. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for joining us today. That was an excerpt from this year's Rural Health Conference. Our annual conference brings together leaders in rural health care with policy advisors, community leaders, and other forward thinkers to gain a better understanding of what's happening across today's rural health care ecosystem. The full conference, including video, is available on demand on our website in our new member center. If you're not yet a CSRHA member, please consider joining today. Your contribution and support is greatly appreciated. You can join by going to our website, csrha.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. It helps us get the word out about the show and lets us pursue other projects like this in the future. Thank you again for joining us today.